internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast by opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls. Not going to tell you how to live your lives in that order uh, this time. We might need to start changing these uh, intros a little bit. Oh, uh, I don't know. It's become such a cadence, and I mean, technically, we, we still are. It's just going to yeah. change a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So this is episode 101, and, um, you know, prior to this, Andy and I were talking, and it's... I I don't know how many of y'all have noticed, but our release schedule is slightly slowed down because, you know, life and shit. Life and shit. Other Uh, other things. Yeah. But um, we still enjoy this project. We still want to put it out. And we were thinking about ways we can kind of make some adjustments here. And this will probably fuck up our triples for a little bit. We, We need to figure out that part of things before we get to episode 105 um but we thought um as a little bit of a shake-up we're wanting to change our format slightly we still want to do our love our hate and our relationship however one of the most fun things for us uh has been just going on relationships.txt or am i the asshole or any other um, random spots on the mm-hmm. internet where you'll find uh, people asking relationship questions and just riffing kind of on the fly. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, um, loves and hates take a lot out of us. So we thought, let's slice this up a little bit. So um, we're playing with the format. You can tell us if you love it or you hate it. Hey. Um, but <laughs> See what you did there. but uh, our move now, uh, we think, is going to be uh, one episode that is just a love and a hate, plus our, you know, patented douchebag buffer that we stole from another uh, now defunct podcast. Uh, so now it's ours. Now it's ours. <laughs> uh, and then the other one will be a relationship special. Uh, just us riffing on a handful of relationship questions. Maybe these episodes will be a little bit shorter. Maybe they'll get longer. At the end of the day, I argue it is maybe going to be more content for y'all. Certainly more than us just posting a regular episode once a month. Yeah, and I think it gives us a chance to like do something a little different and you know have some more like fun with it, do something a little more off the fly. And uh, since we have done a whole hundred ass of these things, I don't know about you, Alex, it's getting slightly harder to find like something I love well enough to expound upon. So you have the opposite. I have trouble finding hates. Oh, indeed. That aren't just like me repeating shit or me screaming into the void about whatever du jour, um, usually politics topic is pissing me off at any given moment. But either way, this will give us a chance to kind of hold on to those a little more if we're releasing them every other episode instead of every episode. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you you told me about this idea and my head instantly started a buzzing with, like, fun little things we can do that I, I think our dear internet friends would love. I'm not going to spoil any of them now. Yeah. But I, I, I think... This is a good thing. This is some growth. This is some shakeup to a formula. And uh, clearly, we're the ones who matter, and we both support this idea, so it's happening. Yeah. Well, <laughs> plus, plus, uh, you know, the feedback I've gotten from listeners who have talked to us, and this was always by design uh, for the show, was people skip shit. 
People sure. people will be like, oh yeah, you're doing a love topic on some comic book thing. I don't really read comic books, so I just skipped over to the hate, which was about a thing that I actually do know. Or um, some of our listeners don't listen to any of the relationship questions because they just don't give a shit. Indeed. Um, I don't know if anybody out there exclusively prefers our relationship questions. If they do, let us know. I haven't heard anything from you. Yeah, you're a fascinating human being. Yeah, but this way, if you just want to skip all the relationship questions, you can. If you want to skip all the loves and hates, you can. We encourage it. That's why we label them the way that we do. That's why we're just sitting here kind of like, all right, let's... um. If, if something does not interest you, that's okay. We don't ask anyone to be uh, entirely uh, completionist about no. this podcast. God, no. Yeah, and whenever whenever we do hear from people who are like, I just started listening, you know, where should I start? Should I start at the beginning? I kind of think, oh, God, no. I'm pretty sure Andy's take on Sam Kinison has not aged well. Not a damn bit. <laughs> but what you can do is just scroll through the titles and see if there's a topic that stands out to you. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those topics are probably kind of outdated. We talked about John Mulaney back before he had some shit go down. We talked about Carly Rae Jepsen before her most recent album and her... Like, like going super viral on TikTok came out. That is another thing that I think we need to start doing as we've passed our centennial episode is going back and doing some updates. Yeah. So this is me in real time having not talked to you before submitting that as an idea for content. Oh, yeah, you know, probably. We talked about Representative Steve King of Iowa. He's not even a representative anymore. Thank God. We talked about the Koch brothers. One of them's dead. Thank God. <laughs> So, maybe the Coke Brothers update will happen when the other Coke dies. <laughs> Who's to say? So, so much shit has happened with the British royal family since we've talked talked about them. Oh, you know. Yeah. And this is ignoring, you know, several uh, horrible, catastrophic things. Like, I don't think we're going to have a chance to give our take on the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio uh, this episode, but we certainly could. Yeah, if you, if you can, if you haven't heard about this, um, there's a horrendous train derailment, uh, which has just ruined things for it, a tiny little town in Ohio. It is comparable to the Chernobyl explosion in the 80s in Russia. It is literally comparable right down to the fact that the U.S. government is trying to hush-hush cover it up with their fucking whole ass. And if you think that we are lying to you, if you think we are exaggerating this, I beg you, just Google it. East Palestine, Ohio. Pete Buttigieg just made the visit there, and he only did it because Donald Trump beat him to the punch. Indeed. And Donald Trump just showed up and started hawking Trump brand bottled waters. So he's on, he's consistent. He is consistent. It's it's some bullshit, and people should be more angry about it and question your media at all times. Indeed. But with that said, one thing that we're going to continue to do every other episode <laughs> is one of us is going to talk about something we love, and the other is going to talk about something we hate. We're going to have a discourse about it, and we're going to provide you, dear listeners, with that content. So speaking of questionable content, uh, actually, no, I really like your love. I think I think this is going to be pure and lovely and wonderful. <laughs> That's what um, to say. Yeah. No, my my shit's going to be questionable. Mm. <laughs> so, you have to love this episode, dear boy. You, uh, you know, take it away. Yeah, so I, I often tend to figure out what am I actually into at any given moment and try to turn that into something to talk about. And that thing right now for me is the modern board game scene. 
Okay. Which is kind of nebulous, but basically this is going to be me talking about board games. I, I, I appreciate this. You have brought over a number of board games. You've gifted me a couple of really interesting ones, actually. Um, I want to we can talk about Onitama for a second. Um, but uh, I appreciate this. So give me give me the layman's intro. Pretend I don't know a single fucking thing about board games beyond your Parker Brothers bullshit. Well, and it, it's kind of interesting because like board games as a concept are one of the earliest inventions in human society. Like the original, the, the first die, the first rock that had different numbers on it that people would throw has been dated as being like a 5,000 year old fossil that they found in Turkey. All right. People have been sitting around and playing games that are close enough to us to call them board games for literally millennia. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the layman's intro is like a board game typically is something that comes in a box and you play it on this cardboard board that has any number of different things maybe a pathway maybe little circles that you pile stuff on top of you move around little pieces made of wood or plastic or rock or whatever you probably involve rolling some die yeah you draw cards so for reference when i was a kid we didn't have many board games um at all we had i remember we had a copy of monopoly we had a copy of um it was either shoots and ladders i think it was shoots and ladders not snakes and ladders um we had a couple of chess sets. Uh, my dad taught me to play chess sure. on, an old, on an old chess set with like little plastic pieces. And, and, and I remember this very, very well. I don't think we had much of anything else. Well, and that makes sense because like something that I'm going to get into is like on the one hand, board games have literally been around forever. Yeah. But on the other hand... Board games as we know them today are their own subgenre of entertainment that is wide and diverse and expansive. And that's really only kind of blown up in the past, God, it's 30 years now, but only in the past 30 years. Yeah. When we were kids, there was kind of two main categories. 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 (laughs) There were two main categories. There was the Parker Brothers shit. There was stuff yeah. that you might get a kid for Christmas. The family might play it. Yeah. You know, Monopoly, Scrabble, Shoots and Ladders, that sort of thing. If you wanted to get fancy, I had friends who had, like, Mousetrap and right. Sorry. And if you wanted to get, like, hardcore and something that your your toxically masculine dad might like. You Risk know, and Stratego. Exactly. <laughs> You had the violent ones that were little war simulators. Nerds. And, you know, all of these games operate with different rules and different mechanics. And and I'm not going to get into the minutia of how any one game works. But it would be something that you might play as a family or might play with your siblings or might play with your friends when it's too cold to go outside or something. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you had, like, the adult intellectual quote-unquote older ancient kind of board games chess go shit like that mancala i would you know i would put scrabble up there honestly like there's i I, i've got friends who have played like in actual scrabble tournaments i'm sure there is like i've talked i talked on our chess episode about how there 
there are world chess championships and shit like that. And granted, that's put on a certain pedestal because there are countries that legitimately have professional chess players. Right. But professional Scrabble is a smaller world, but it is a thing. Oh, and absolutely. That makes complete sense just because it could be like... It, it, it is competitive. Yeah. It is competitive, especially for the people who lean against other forms of competition like sports there are i think here's my dividing line there are board games for which people have legitimately published theory books there is such a thing as chess theory there's such a thing as scrabble theory there's such a thing as moncala and go and mahjong theory you can buy books that are the theory of these things sure i don't think there's theory there's any theory books for sorry if there are, it is incredibly niche. But yeah, I think your point yeah. stands. There's the ones that you can like really think about and really like spend years chewing on in the back of your mind. And it feels very like yeah. high intellect and astute. And then there's the one that's a lot of colorful cards and pieces yeah. that like. And you pick it up. You, you pick it up and your kids might like. Yeah. For the longest time, those were kind of the two categories. And I'm being very overly simplistic. There yeah. were, you know, there were games like Stratego or Carcassonne that were developed in the 70s, 80s, and were definitely not for kids, but yeah. also weren't like in the same ballpark as chess and Mahjong and stuff like that. Yeah. And like kind of separately there were all of these other avenues for the same sort of we're going to sit around the table and roll dice kind of entertainment mm -hmm. you know i've talked extensively about my rediscovered love of warhammer mm -hmm. and games workshop the company that published that published it out in the 80s mm -hmm. you know um collectible card games have been around since the late 80s with Magic and Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! And that is its own complete subset world where the only reason I wouldn't say it's a board game is because those don't really involve boards. They involve collectible decks of cards. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, and this might be meaningful to some of our listeners and not to others. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure Matt Calder is screaming at his uh, <laughs> speaker right oh, now. Oh, God, I didn't even think of this. Matt... I am so sorry. I did not think to include you in this conversation. We're probably going to have to do another episode of this with him. He just called you a bastard. He did. Um, if, for those of you who don't recall, go back to our X-Men episode where we featured uh, the fabulous Matt Calder. Indeed. He is uh, a bigger nerd than either of us, and that is saying something. And a compliment. Yes. Um, here's, here's my question. Can you succinctly explain to me the difference between a board game and a tabletop game? Yes, yeah, so that's the other thing I was going to say is, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, the most popular tabletop game ever, was invented in the 60s by Gary Gygax. The difference is with a tabletop game, by and large, it is more about creating a fantasy mm -hmm. using pieces as a simulacrum for what you're seeing in your head. Yeah. It's more about keeping track of you know different aspects of your character your strength your intelligence your magic blah 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 
um, and it is a more long form experience. Mm -hmm. You can play Dungeons and Dragons and only do like a single session if you really want, but that's not what the experience is supposed to be. Yeah. It's supposed to be something you play over the course of dozens of hours over dozens of sessions. And maybe you just have a bi-weekly D D night with your friends over the course of three years. And yeah. that can be the legitimate experience. I have friends who do that. And that goes for, you know, other tabletop games besides Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. Whereas a board game, by and large, again, by and large, is meant to be something that you can set, set up, play, pack back up over the course of an evening. It yeah. is supposed to be a singular experience in, in what it is. Yeah. That's not to get in the weeds because there, there is a recent thing called Legacy Games where the whole point is you play a board game, but you play it like Dungeons and Dragons, where you play it several times over the course of six months and it changes. But we're not going to get into that. Go on. We're not going to get into We don't, we don't have time to unpack all of that. <laughs> By and large, that would be the difference, I would say. Um, even even uh, I'll lump in Dungeons and Dragons and, and Warhammer, stuff that is you know just tabletop gaming. It's more about like taking miniatures and simulating an experience and it gets very heavy into rolling a bunch of dice and holding a bunch of numbers in your head and figuring out whose numbers beat the other person's numbers and you win. Yes. Whereas a board game can have a much more varied experience. Mm -hmm. There are board games where it's just, I'm going to spend the night building up the best numbers and then my numbers beat your numbers. But there's other games where it's like all of us are working together to do a thing. Or numbers don't even matter. It just matters who's got the most of this colored tile on this colored space. It can it can be a different thing, and it is shorter. Yeah. So that is the primary difference I would give. Okay. Now, I, I was mentioning about 30 years ago, something happened that a lot of people put as like a benchmark in board game history. And that is the release of a game called Settlers of Catan. I've played this. I was about to ask, have you played Settlers of Catan? I think I've played it with... Did I play it with you? I have played Settlers of Catan. I have never played this game, so okay. it must not have been with me. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I have played it. I, I think I played it with Kelly and Nathan. I, we, we had friends who just had it, and I think we... Yeah, I've played it sure. once or twice. Well, that sounds about right. And so, yeah, this game comes out in 1995 and kind of takes... A certain part of the world by storm it became instantly a very popular introductory board game something that you might play with your friends in college it to is, this day it is very accessible it is a game you can you can read the rules and it is relatively some of the board games you have shown me you you are straight up just like you spend 20 minutes reading the rules to us yes uh, because it's so complicated or we start playing and you're like okay when we get to this point I'll tell you what the next thing is yeah and Catan you know you can read all the rules to Catan on like a postcard note and yeah. and it, it it can be a complicated game but to learn it is not terribly complicated right and that's sort of like the the sweet spot of what this offers it is a low um low level of inaccessible yeah so it's a very accessible thing but it can become something very interesting and like you get very invested in it it's like chess you can learn all the rules in in 
10 minutes. Right. But to master it definitely would take decades. Right. And to be simplistic to the level of being unkind for anybody who has never heard of Catan or not played it, essentially it is just a game where you have like a little island and you have little tiles on the island and this tile grows wheat and this tile makes lumber and you trade resources with the other players at the game for the purpose of at the end having the most of all the things you can and scoring points in that way. Yeah. Uh, again, that's very uh, simplistic, but it, that's basically what it is. It's like a board game that mixes Oregon Trail with Monopoly and maybe a little bit of like Farmville or Animal Crossing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so like that just that took the world by storm. It, it is probably not what a lot of people would say is the best board game, but it's what a lot of people would say is the best board game to introduce to someone if you want them to like board games. I, I, I can see that. And like I said, that was in 1995. And that kind of really jump started in a lot of creative type developers minds what games can be. And so the snowball started rolling down the hill to the point that it is still rolling to this day. And it is, it is now a mighty avalanche of different content, of different board games that you can buy and have and enjoy of just literally anything. If you can think of a concept, odds are there is a board game or two or three that is about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of how to like create examples of this. So this is actually a good spot to bring it up. A game that you gave me, I think it's a, it was either a Christmas or a birthday gift, Yes, is a two-player game called Onitama. And Onitama is um, kind of similar to chess to a certain degree. You have five pieces, and the whole point of Onitama is all your pieces move based on these cards that you trade around and there's like 16 different cards but only four are actually uh or i think five are actually played it and they're dealt randomly and it's so because of that the game is different every time because yeah. five out of these 16 cards you're almost never going to get the same configuration of cards the same configuration of movements and you have to strategically think not only um about getting defending your pieces, attacking your opponent's pieces, but also all the cards are face up. Every, your opponent can see what card options you have, what movement options you have. And when you play a card, it then goes into a pile for a turn before going to your opponent the next turn. Right. So you also have to think about, I have this card, but do I want my opponent to have that same card? When do I play this? It's really fascinating and i'm sure there's some incredible theory behind it and it like tickles my brain in these really interesting ways i don't know when that game was invented but i'm fairly certain it is pretty recent it is and he's googling it now uh, onitama came out in 2014 2014 this game is only nine years old it feels it has a similar vibe to like a mahjong or a go or a chess where it feels like a game that is hundreds of years old sure but it came out in 2014 and it is really i, I and maybe this is just me uh the board games that i tend to enjoy the most tend to be these closed systems yeah they are movements or 
um, established rules that wh where the game is different every time, maybe because of the arrangements or certain choices you make. But again, you learn them very quickly and you just kind of play the moves, the, the best moves available to you, also partially based on what your opponent is doing. And I, I don't know, it's a very simplistic game, but I am amazed that it's only nine years old. Yeah. Truly, it, it does not feel that way. And I feel like I could spend decades mastering this game. And I haven't even gotten you any of the expansion packs. What the fuck? There are like three. It's a, it's amazing. This is, it better just be more cards because the simplicity is what I like about it. <laughs> and, and that is just one game. You know, there's, there's dozens if not hundreds of games about being a pirate and doing pirate shit in different ways. Jamaica. Jamaica, which is a game about racing around the island of Jamaica as different pirates. You and I played a game that was literally about mountain goats going up a mountain. Yeah. And it was actually really fun and had this incredible, like, how am I going to screw over my opponents versus how am I going to collect the most cards I need to win strategy kind of game. Yeah. There's games about going into space. There's games that are like D&D &D light. It, it's D&D &D that you can do over the course of an evening. There's games about like setting up an economic system and pretending you're a feudal lord doing Settlers of Catan shit. There's a game about creating train railroads. And that is one of the most popular board games of all time, yeah. Ticket to Ride, which I say... At this point, most people have probably heard of Ticket to Ride. And and you know what? This this list of descriptions makes me think of something. So for Christmas this past year, I bought my nephew a game that he was really wanting. Uh, what what the fuck was it called? It was something <laughs> about washing a dog. Okay. Like it, and it was very much a like children's board game yeah, of and, and it, it, like i guess he'd seen the commercials for it and he was really and, and he just really wanted it because it was loud noises and and all this shit anyway i bought him this board game and i haven't played it with him and and i hope he likes it um but in that game my five-year-old nephew is very likely, like, pretending this is a real dog, and it's a make-believe play yeah. kind of thing. Sure. In these games that you are describing here, none of us, when we have played them, have been doing the, the, the childlike, I am pretending that I am this. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, what turns a lot of adults off. A lot of sure. adults say, like, oh, I don't want to pretend that I am, um, you know, trying to escape an island. Um, mm -hmm. Or I don't want, you know, it, it's not fun for me. Like, I, I, I'm an adult. I don't want to play pretend like I'm a gem miner or a railroad baron. And the thing is, it's like you're not. What you're doing is playing these closed system games that have a strategy component. Right. And the the theme, quote unquote, uh, is 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 hooked in there for the sake of mostly art. Yeah, I was about to say the theme is secondary, but it provides so much extra oomph. Yeah. It wouldn't be interesting if like all board games were just 
you're putting down different gray cards or pieces on a board and like there's no difference or variation. The yeah. theme is not essential, but the theme can be what hooks you in. Yeah. Ticket to Ride is about trains. But at the end of the day, it's a game where it's like, okay, am I going to, it's, you know what, if I'm going to compare it to something that I know a lot of adults play, much like certain card games like Spades or Hearts, it's how am I going to extend my own ability to do well in this game versus how am I going to fuck my opponents over? Exactly that. I would characterize Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride is about manipulating the people around you and like, purposefully being a dick and ruining their plans while furthering your own plans and there is a coat of paint that is train colored over it all yeah that's and that is exactly what we're talking about here yeah so it's not about play acting it is about this that there is the theme over this usually pretty interesting strategy yeah absolutely it it, it is strategic it is competitive And if you are non-confrontational, you can just play the games where you're all working together. One of my wife's favorite games we've got, uh, it was a gift from my sister, it's called Pandemic. I was going to just talk about that. It's another very famous board game, and it is all about just trying to cure a worldwide series of viral diseases, which is really weird to play in a post-2020 world. It is, but but it was fun because, you know, we sat there playing it, four of us, and the whole time, you know, we're all coordinating because all of us have different cards and different skills and abilities. And there's a point where we're just like, okay, uh, like I spent the into- the whole that whole game is about traveling all over the world and like cure, quote unquote curing does it, curing the pandemics. And there's certain objectives you have to do in order to cure things. I never left North and South America. No. Like I was purely there the entire game because. With the way that the game mechanics worked, the infections were spreading like hell in Europe. And I was like, okay, the infections aren't so bad on this side. And with my abilities, I'm able to do this and this. So I'm just going to stay in North and South America and just keep things under control here while the rest of y'all did all the other things everywhere else. And it was talking through that strategy. And those, I like those kinds of cooperative games, honestly. I like, I like when you're trying to beat the game, not just beat my opponents. Absolutely. And so, like, what I love about this, I, I love the variety. I love the, the renaissance that this entertainment form is having. Something that I really think about, what I love is the shared communal experience whether you're playing a cooperative game or you're playing against one another, it's something where we we've basically had a like standing game night where once or twice a month you, me and our wives all get together and we play a game. And sometimes it's a card game and sometimes it's a board game. Yeah. You've got a karaoke machine for Valentine's day and we sang karaoke. Yeah. Um, I played, I, I, but that's the thing. Like I've made poker our game before. Right. And I like taught our wives how to play poker. And being able to sit around the table with my friends and do this thing. It is a closer form of interaction than not. Like the the thing that I keep thinking about is I compare it to video games. Video games are also, of course, a, a wide and varied system of entertainment. And it's a thing that you can spend a Saturday night doing. And with the right game, it's even a thing that you can sit around 
with your friends doing on a Saturday night if you play a party game like yeah. you know, Mario Kart or something like that. We've done that. But the difference usually is with that, either you're all in the same space and you're all staring at the same thing, the TV, or say you're doing something cooperative and you're playing online with all of your friends. That's still a valid experience, but you are what you are actually doing is sitting at your computer, staring at your screen, doing the thing, and you're talking to people. Yeah. With board games, you're able to sit across from the table from the person and, like, look them in the eye and tell them why it's really important that they need to helicopter you to Jakarta so that you can <laughs> stop the pandemic that's going there. Or you can look at somebody else across the table and say, you son of a bitch, I really needed to put my train there, and now I have to do something else. Yeah. It, it is a more intimate experience, I think. A more socially vi uh, vibrant experience. Yeah. And that's something I really, really enjoy about the, like, this type of game as opposed to other ways to hang out and spend time. I mean, on that note, you, when you moved to Asheville, you only knew me and Stephanie. Yeah. We'd introduced you to a couple of our friends, but um, a way that you have gotten out a little bit, um, gotten outside, gotten, and met a few people. Yeah. Um, is you went to a local game shop where you've chatted with people. You've gone to that same game shop and you've met a few people who you talked to on that game shop's Discord channel and you've met with them and had them like teach you games. Yeah. Or you've played games with them. Absolutely. And, you know, you don't you don't go to a regular game night yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you don't go to a regular game night yet, but like that has been a way that you have kind of entered in and found started building a little bit of community in a brand new place yeah. and these are people who you did not meet through me and stephanie you did not meet through other people you knew this is purely a way for you to build some of your own community there and i'm never going to join a wreck softball league i'm just not that's not who i am that's not how i like to spend my time but this is how i like to spend my time and i am able to find like-minded individuals who like to do the thing something i haven't even talked about is like the resurgence of board game cafes and bars this is a thing that there were several in Orlando. There's one in Asheville that we mm -hmm. went to on my birthday because that's like, oh, my God, I want to do this. Yeah. This is a thing that is popular enough now that there's enough people interested where you can go to a place, get a drink, and play Ticket to Ride with your friends. Yeah. And it, that is a wonderful social thing. The other thing, the, the last thing I want to say about why I love these games there is something about the tactile experience. Mm -hmm. Again, comparing this to like playing video games, what you're doing with your hands is you're moving a joystick and you're pressing a button and that's about it. With board games, especially like in this modern board game age, but even with Monopoly and shit, you are reaching down and you're rolling dice and you're moving your pieces and you're handing out cards and money and whatever. One of my favorite games, the game that I kind of, I, I randomly saw people play on YouTube and was like, oh my God, I have to have that. And absolutely the thing that put me onto this is called Betrayal at House on the Hill. 
Mm-hmm. And Betrayal House on the Hill is a haunted house game that every time is different because the thing you do is you build the haunted house as you play it. There's a, a stack yeah. of cardboard squares half a foot high that you place down and the act of just picking up the thing, flipping it over, actually putting it down, putting it into place, looking at it, reading it, seeing what special thing about it. That is so much more involved with Monopoly, picking up your thing and moving down three spaces and seeing, oh shit, I'm on, I can't think of a single street in Monopoly, but now I owe you $300. Yeah. And handing out the $300. It it feels physically more involved in a way that I really like. I have... I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast before. Uh, When we were kids, my sister and I had a Super Nintendo. And we didn't have a ton of games. But one of the games we had was the Super Nintendo version of Clue. Mm. And I have played Clue in a board game fashion. I played Clue on the Super Nintendo version. And... Frankly, it is more fun board game version. Sure. It is kind of weird to play Clue. And I've played I played Risk on the Sega. I had friends who had a Sega Genesis and they had yeah. Risk for the Sega. And that was kind of weird. And I never really followed it super well. Playing the actual board game. And granted, Risk isn't fun for me at the best of times. <laughs> but, um, but no, there is something about that that tactile experience and there are video games that are different every time yeah and a lot of them are the kind of party games a lot of them are like frankly mario party which is a game i don't particularly love your wife adores yeah and then gets really mad if they don't win it's amazing yeah but that's that game is different every time because while you can play it enough times that you're familiar with all the mini games and all of the courses, at the end of the day, there's dice rolls, there's some luck involved, there's what other people are doing, yeah. and and it can be a different experience every time. That said, at the end of the day, every time you play Mario Party, you're hitting buttons on a controller. Yeah. Yahoo! And for some of us, that is more interesting than others. Yeah. And again, it's completely valid. I know friends that dearly enjoy video games. I know friends and have people who dearly enjoy an actual sport game and probably would go out and join the minor league rec softball, whatever. There, and you know, that's valid too. Yeah, and power to them. But this is the one that I gravitate the most to. This is the one that is the most fun for me it is it you know something that i kind of am stumbling upon in real time it is an amazing icebreaker you you mentioned this and how you know i've i've met people and i've started to make friends where the only thing we had in common was we both had a shared agreement that we were going to play this game but that really does help like for somebody who is uh, a little more shy in social situations or a little worried about being awkward you have a a context and you have a groundwork in which to express yourself and be relaxed because if you want you can just focus on the game then all of a sudden you're relaxed and you're making jokes with the person and boom you've made a friend hooray yeah there is 100% a world where I am an old retired man and I go to a pl- I, and I go to a park and play chess with people indeed and I'm not gonna and you know maybe I bring a clock but I'm not doing bullet games where it's one minute because in those cases you're not talking to someone right 
it's 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 the 30 minute game where you're sitting and you're chatting with the person and you're talking to them as you're playing and you probably lose more games than you win but you you just have that experience yeah so the internet age has made this easier than ever to figure out you can go on a site called board game geek and literally it has a list of like 6000 video games and you can just start clicking around and see a box that interests you and then get into that and then find out oh I really want to play this game about being a checks notes 19th century oil baron Okay, I didn't think I'd want to do that, but that looks like fun. Uh. You can go, uh, there. there is a game on Steam that is just called Board Game Simulator, and you can just play games in the online experience if that's what you really want to do. And it's just, it's easier than ever to kind of get involved with. Kickstarter has made it easier than ever to distribute because people are just coming up with a game and selling it to the select amount of people who want to buy the thing and then that's interesting because there's a collection aspect and you can go, oh, I have the special Kickstarter version of this <laughs> game. You cannot buy this in a store. Mm. I own it now. You have to come to my house to play it. That's where it gets to like weird collector shit. <laughs> sure. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it's amazingly fun. It's something I very much love. I said on Twitter, 2022 was the year that I got really into model painting and became that guy. I feel like 2023 is the year I become really into being like the board game guy. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so I, I could talk about this ad nauseum. We're going to talk about this again, Matt. I promise you we will coordinate an opportunity to like talk even more in depth about all this stuff. Um, but for now, that is my my part one of my love of board games. I appreciate that. And I have seen this be something that has given you so much joy. Uh, and, and, and it has given you community. And, you know, you've even introduced me to parts of it. I will never be as into it as you, especially because on some of these more complicated games, I have absolutely glazed over. Um, Indeed, and that's fair. And there are games you've introduced me to where I'm like, I'm kind of meh about that, but uh, other but but beyond that, there are games you've shown me that I absolutely adored, and I am absolutely here for you talking about this as much as you want. Hooray! Shall we move on to the hate? Yes, absolutely. Now you were kind of coy and said that this one might be a like a problematic one. I don't know about it being problematic. Here's the thing. Um, I, I'm just gonna put all the cards on the table. My hate topic for this episode is M. Night Shyamalan. Okay. Now, here's the thing. I don't actually hate the man, M. Night Shyamalan. As far as I know, he has done nothing overly problematic. Sure. Other than, like, some egotistical choices in his art that I don't really love, which aren't problematic. He hasn't, as far as I've ever heard, he hasn't hurt anybody. He hasn't abused his power, as far as I'm aware of. Yeah. Um... But I think his career is bad overall. Sure. I think his oeuvre is bad overall. And I don't like it. And I want to talk about that. Okay. And I think anybody who recognizes the name will probably agree with your vibes. But can you just, for people who don't somehow recognize the name M. Night Shyamalan, can you tell me who you're talking about in a way that would be understandable? But of course. So M. Night Shyamalan is uh, an American filmmaker and actor. Um, he is best known for works that, for, for films that tend to have sort of, um, supernatural plots 
And the biggest thing are twist endings. Mm-hmm. This has been uh, this has been the hallmark of his career, but I would also argue it's kind of the albatross around his neck. Sure. For his career. Um, to kind of just get into his his background is actually pretty easily summarizable. Um, you know, he had uh, he was born to, uh, in Mahe, India, to ethnically Indian parents. Um, when he was six years old, his family moved to the United States, and he actually grew up in Penn Valley, Pennsylvania. A lot of his works take place in Pennsylvania. He's mm-hmm. very much a hometown boy. Sure. Um, he attended private Roman Catholic grammar schools uh, and an Episcopal academy and a private Episcopal school uh, in Marion Station, Pennsylvania. He said he's talked extensively about how he very much felt like an outsider there because he wasn't Christian um, and he was he wasn't white, so he very much had to deal with Pennsylvania Catholics, which you know. God help him. Um, And then uh, he went to college at uh, NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, graduating in 1992. Um, He wanted to be a filmmaker since he was a child. He's like so many filmmakers. He's like, yeah, I got a Super 8 camera when I was six and I made like hundreds of home movies. And uh, I I think it is funny. I I was looking into his background and (laughs) he like... His father was like, why don't you be a doctor like I am? His doctor was, a, his, his dad was a neurosurgeon and his mother was like, no, honey, you pursue your passions. Like, good on him. I mean, if you, if you have the means. Yeah, no. And, and that's, that's a sweet story. So, um, his film career started, um, with a movie I've never seen, a semi-autobiographical drama called Praying with Anger. That he did while he was still in college and he self-funded with money borrowed from family and friends. Mm. He then did a second movie called Wide Awake, which I also haven't seen, but his parents are listed as associate producers on sure, it. Sure, sure. Um, and, and it's like, and, and it's very much about um, shit that he dealt with because it's about a 10-year-old Catholic schoolboy uh, mm. who is struggling with the existence of God after his grandfather dies. But it actually had people... It, it had Dennis Leary and Rosie O'Donnell and Julia Stiles in it. Like, sure. It was, it was, you know, and Robert Loggia. Like, um, his early career actually was more uh, him doing screenplays. He co-wrote the screenplay for Stuart Little. Um <laughs> He was um, a ghostwriter for 1999's She's All That, uh, which if any of you remember, that had Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook. It was so he, he this was not the thing that like this was him working in Hollywood. You co-write Stuart Little. That movie is, you know, that movie did well. Sure. Um, and he was doing well as a screenwriter, but he wanted to be a director. So his um, big breakthrough i'm now an international name was 1999's the sixth sense mm. and we're gonna spend some time talking about the sixth sense please laugh uh, well you know what i'll just go ahead and launch into it so the sixth sense comes out in 1999 for those of you who don't know it is a ripoff of an are you afraid of the dark episode um where a child sees ghosts of dead people and he's being helped by the psychiatrist and spoiler alert for a movie that came out 24 years ago at the end it turns out the psychologist who we're watching his day-to-day life and he seems to have a shitty marriage and is disconnected from all the people around him and 
it turns out at the end he is actually dead and these it's him interacting and he doesn't realize it and that's why this kid sees him and blah 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 tell now the sixth sense did great it was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Why it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay is, I don't understand, because it is, again, it is an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. Okay, and I, I want to take a second here, because it is very clear that you are too close to this, and like... I hated this movie when it came out. I, I, I hated this movie when I was nine years old and saw it. And considering we just had a big, like kerfuffle over another movie you hated when it first came out i all i want to say is like to say the sixth sense the reaction to it was it was great is a gross understatement this was a fucking phenomenon this was took hollywood by storm with the twist ending and i'm not even saying i like it that much i think it's a perfectly fine film i didn't know it was ripped off until you told me about this a few weeks ago but like this thing put turned m night Shyamalan from a nobody to somebody that like is the cream of the hollywood director crop and gets to do whatever the fuck he wants for the next like rest of his career people were thinking at the time and i know we're going to turn into the fall but like this was one of the biggest films of the pre-2000 world inarguably i see dead people yeah this film was a huge success made incredible money was really influential made him a household name sure this is a, the, the biggest comparison i would give to this this film did for M. Night Shyamalan what The Matrix did for the Wachowskis. Yeah, that's a good comparable. And and the thing is, the Wachowskis have made some crap movies since The Matrix, but the Wachowskis will always work because at the end of the day, they will always have been the people who did The Matrix. Yeah. M. Night Shyamalan will always work because at the end of the day, he made The Sixth Sense. Sure, yeah. So... And, and, and you know what? It might be... Th th this is where I do have sympathy for the man. Because he might not ever match that success, but damned if the things surrounding the sixth sense have not haunted his career ever since. Also, I would agree and arguable. But yes, okay. So just, just like, all I wanted to state was that that was an incredible film. And like, Again, I know we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, but, like, he kind of rode that momentum for, like, a good six years. Yeah. Like, the next, like, three, four movies he made were all, by and large, really, really well-respected. Yeah. So, after that, he came out with, um, I think his next movie was Unbreakable, mm -hmm. which is a fine movie. I don't actually hate Unbreakable. For the longest time in a, a pre-MCU-ridden world... People would make a legitimate argument that Unbreakable was the greatest superhero film of all time. Uh, and I wouldn't have agreed with that in a world where Richard Donner's Superman and Tim Burton's Batman existed. But I'm not mad about people liking Unbreakable. I think sure. I think Unbreakable is fine. I think I think Unbreakable is rated. Sure. It's not overrated. It's not underrated. At this stage, it's fine. Yeah. No one thing. 131 people died so you could finally understand the destiny for which you were born. Um, he did Signs, which I actually like. 
you know, Mel Gibson is a bastard. Indeed. But I I think Signs is a pretty good movie. Like, and I point to Signs as an example of, like, M. Night... Signs is one of the least twisty. Mm. Like, Unbreakable has this huge twist. Yeah. Where, you know, Bruce Willis discovers his abilities. Yeah. Uh, because he's actually a superhero. He just doesn't realize it. Right. Um... You know, The Village, which comes out in this space and time, has a big twist. By the way, we're spoiling everything on M. Night Shyamalan in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, The Village, where, you know, the big twist is that they're actually in contemporary times and all this shit. Right. Um, you know, it's... Signs is the least twisty. And I point to Signs as an example of, like, what M. Night Shyamalan can do with a human story. Because Signs is, at the end of the day, about a... I, I can't remember if he's a path. No, he's a priest, an Episcopalian priest who has lost his faith after his wife has died. At the same time, there's this alien invasion happening, and he is trying to keep his family safe when he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. And at the end, the alien invasion is thwarted for a very dumb reason. Which but, is the twist in signs that you yeah. can kill them with water. Yeah, which why they came to a place where 70% of the surface area could kill them is, <laughs> is a plot hole that will never be understood. Right. But it's 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 a pretty okay movie. It's a pretty good movie, I'd even argue. I think Unbreakable is fine. Nice. I think Signs is pretty good. The Village is one of Mariah's like top five favorite films. I don't understand that. I liked The Village okay. After that point is where you get into... That's where the fog kind of starts lifting. Yes, absolutely. Because the problem is people were showing up at M. Night Shyamalan movies wanting the twist expecting the twist we'd had four movies at this point of the twist going to your point of this is the thing that made him a household name with unbreakable the idea of the Shyamalanian twist which was an adjective people were using for a while please put a drop of chubby checkers the twist in here you got it That being a thing that people came to expect. And you're absolutely right. We're going to the movies to see. Yeah. So this really fucks him in 2006. Again, we get we, we get Signs in 2002. We get Unbreakable in 2000. These are all after 1999. The Village is in 2004. And he did pretty good. Yeah. Then he gets to 2006, and this is his big stumbling point. And this is a movie that I saw in theaters because I worked in a regal at the time. Mm. Lady in the Water. Right. Which is so bad. Okay, real quick. I know you're going to talk about it. I am a Lady in the Water defender, and I will get into it. But I, I want to state up front, everything you're about to say stands. Lady in the Water is bad for a number of reasons, not all just rooted around the twist. The twist in Lady in the Water actually isn't bad. It, it really, really isn't. Mm. Uh, by the way, the twist at the end is that um, Paul Giamatti thinks that he's this warrior figure um, prophesized, but it turns out he's actually a healer and the warrior is this other dude. It's... It's dumb. It's, a, it's, it's got a dumb premise... 
it's really annoying because M. Night Shyamalan was trying to do the Hitchcock thing where he was casting himself as small roles in all of his movies. And by the time he gets to Lady in the Water, he casts he casts himself as the writer who figures out how to save the world. Sure. Which, it, it, it is the most self-indulgent he, he gets. Oh, no, it's not. The happening is the most <laughs> self-indulgent he gets. Okay, fair enough. The, the, the thing I want to say about Lady in the Water, from, from my perspective and, and from, I think, a lot of people's perspectives... M. Night Shyamalan was a horror director, or at the very least, a thriller director. Psychological thriller. Yeah, psychological. None of his movies were really horror until this at this point. Uh, for an eight-year-old, both The Sixth Sense and The Village read as horror, but eh. um, you were not all of us were watching the Jason Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street films when we were like. Preteens. Fair enough. Um, Lady in the Water is in no way, shape, or form horror or psychological thriller. No. It plays out like this Neil Gaiman-esque... It's urban fantasy. Urban fantasy thing. And so I saw... I, I watched Lady in the Water, and I really like wanted to kind of give it a little more credit as like, oh, he's trying to do something different. Oh, it's it's a modern fairy tale sort of thing. It's not supposed to be scary or thrilling in any sort of way. And, and yes, the twist is weird and the whole concept is weird, but whatever, it's fine. It's okay that not everybody likes this. Again, the twist in Lady in the Water is not a problem. The wooden directing is the problem. Fair. The bad pacing is the problem. Fair. The subpar cinematography and how everything is whitewashed in a vague gray is the problem. Fair. I, I will not defend this movie at yeah. all other than saying my thoughts when I first saw it. If you get a wooden performance out of Paul Giamatti, that is your fault as a director. Indeed. So... Lady in the Water is where he kind of starts taking a downturn. His next film is The Happening. And that is where the House of Cards fully crumbles. Because everyone agrees The Happening is a terrible movie. Now, I get angry because in the post-world of The Happening, he has actually gone back and argued that it was supposed to be bad. It was because it was spoofing mm. it was spoofing crappy B-movies. Okay. That's that that's that's the narrative that he's gone with. And that is patently stupid. Yeah. Because you know, you know who you know who did good spoofs of crappy B movies? Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino when they did Grindhouse. Sure. And those because those were self-aware. Those were obviously schlocky, but still had a larger artistic vision. And I will argue, people people will try and people who love M. Night Shyamalan will try and go back and defend the happening and be like, well, he meant it to be shitty. Here's the point. If you mean for it to be shitty and it is not clear to us, the audience, that that is the joke, that it is parody. Yeah. If your parody is not off obvious, it is bad parody. No one watches Dodgeball and goes, this is a serious sports movie. We understand it to be parody. And even in being parody, Dodgeball kind of serves as an amazing sports movie. Yes. And the best parodies will do that. Yeah. Again, the Grindhouse movies are schlocky horror and schlocky thrillers. And they do it so well. I don't even like Tarantino. And I will argue Death Proof is maybe a top three Tarantino movie ever. Like, it is, it is legitimately solid because it is parody done well. Sure. At the end of the day... 
if you're trying to make a spoof on B-movies, on crappy sci-fi channel B-movies, and you say that is the justification as to why Zoe Deschanel and Mark Wahlberg have such garbage chemistry with one another, why the dialogue is absolute shit, why, again, the direction shows good actors giving terrible performances. I might just put the same Mark Wahlberg drop like four different times in two minutes for this part. I am okay with that. What? No. But that's the point. That's, we see the cracks with the happening. The happening is over, I saw the happening in theaters as well, actually. Yeah. That movie is obvious. We're trying, and, and, and what is our twist? The trees are killing us. Yeah. And this is where you really see, Lady in the Water showed us that the twist endings were becoming an albatross. In the happening, it is absolutely an albatross. Yeah. And in his next movie, he doesn't have a twist ending because it's his adaptation of The Last Airbender. Indeed. Which, I don't know how much time... I have not seen The Last Airbender, because I never really cared for the TV show. I never saw an episode of the TV show. What? No. I heard it's very good. I have nothing against it. I have heard that this is one of the worst adaptations ever committed to film. Here's what I will say. As somebody who has is not a diehard Avatar fan, but has seen much of Avatar The Last Airbender... The cartoon is widely regarded as an incredible work of art in its own sense and maybe the greatest anime produced by the Western world. And that's kind of a weird caveat, but it, it, it absolutely earns that. By people whose job it is to critique such things... Yes, The Last Airbender is not only regarded as the worst adaptation of an animated work ever, but one of the single worst movies of all time. Mm -hmm. There is a a YouTuber uh, who goes by Mother's Basement. He does extensive anime reviews. And this man's opinion I trust when it comes to anime more than most things. He watched every Hollywood adaptation of an anime film. And his thoughts on The Last Airbender, the Hollywood version, was that it is so bad, you cannot even watch it for the bad parts. You you cannot hate watch this movie. It is too bad to hate watch. Mm. It is a sunk cost fallacy of your own entertainment to think that you can get drunk and watch this thing and find any amount of enjoyment. It is the worst adaptation ever put to film. And this movie tanks him for a while yes i'm going to skip over kind of those middle years um and and i'm going to be honest with you i have not watched a Shyamalan project since the happening sure my understanding is that some of his later films have largely been pretty decent he does after earth which does very poorly three years later Which is kind of the same thing where he's not trying to do necessarily a horror thing. That was like his take another swing at doing a big Hollywood blockbuster action film with Will and Jaden Smith. And again, it was incredibly bad. Yeah. And then we come to Split. Split's released in 2017. It grosses $279 million on a budget of $9 million. It is critically... Mostly successful. It's I, I wouldn't call it mixed review. I think they were mostly positive. Um, 
And it was very financially successful. And yeah. it's charged with revitalizing his career. Yeah. In a big, bad way. He follows... And Split, the big twist at the end of Split, really is that it's actually a sequel to Unbreakable. Well, okay, hold on. Because I, I want to talk about this for a second. I saw Split in theaters. Okay. I like James McAvoy. It looked like a really... It, it, it is a really good James McAvoy vehicle. It introduces the world to Anya Taylor-Joy. The twist in Split is this killer has split personality disorder. Which isn't real, but... And one of his personalities is a superhuman godlike being that it, it has plans to basically take over the world and, like kill whoever he wants and the real twist is he lets Anya Taylor-Joy's character live because she has attempted suicide before mm -hmm. and he goes oh you know the real pain of the world so therefore you're worthy of life and that is one of the most disgusting twists I've ever fucking heard of like that is inconceivably dark and just fucked up in my opinion but it, it did give... It, it was a shot in the arm for Shyamalan. Sure. Absolutely. And then, um, you know, he follows that with Glass, which ends this trilogy of sorts. Right. Um, and I can make an argument on Split and Glass. And actually, I can retroactively put it to Unbreakable, where I state that... Um, M. Night Shyamalan has horrible disability politics. Yes, absolutely. And that is a way that these movies absolutely do not age well, even slightly. It's a minor point, honestly, um, because, again, there's other reasons I, I dislike the man. I don't want to... I want to be clear as I, as I kind of wrap this up here. I know he's then come, he's come out with Old, which was, I think, received somewhat mixed reviews, but ultimately mostly positive, did fairly well. Uh, and his new movie is Knock at the Cabin. And Knock at the Cabin um, is interesting because Knock at the Cabin also has kind of fucked politics. Mm. Are you familiar with the plot line of Knock at the Cabin? I mean, only from what I've gathered from the trailer in which you have a... Uh a gay couple and their daughter have this cabin that is like their private cabin in the woods, mountain home, whatever. And four strangers show up at their door, the knock at the cabin and explain the three of you must choose which of the three of you we murder or else the apocalypse will happen. And then they like turn on the TV and the apocalypse is happening. So, Here's the here's the deal with Knock at the Cabin. You you've got it, and I'm and I'm gonna give you this spoiler free. Mm. But the overarching theme in Knock at the Cabin, yes, is that there's this gay couple, and there are these four people who met each other online, and kind of went down a little bit of a echo chamber kind of situation, and were compelled to come out and find this family right. out in their cabin and push them to this. Interesting, okay. And I'm, 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 and again, not going to spoil this, but the themes at the end of this movie kind of end up being that the online radicalized people, um, one of whom 
is very explicitly extremely evangelical mm. turn out to kind of be right. Mm. And it's not a one-to-one there. I'm not sitting here saying that, um, you know, M. Night Shyamalan is trying to push forward a piece of right-wing propaganda. I'm not. I don't sure. think that was his intention um, based on everything I understand about this movie. However, it's done kind of sloppy. Sure. And that has kind of consistently been an issue that I will take with M. Night Shyamalan. There's a lot of sloppiness to his oeuvre. And I don't like his work generally. I don't find his direction particularly solid. I think his writing suffers greatly by the fact that he has this albatross of twist endings. Right. I think he has has the potential to make very, very good movies. I'd be willing to give Split and Glass a try. I really would. I liked Unbreakable. But he's sloppy with with his disability politics. He's often... Not always, but several times sloppy with his treatment of marginalized communities. Sure. Of conceits like evangelical Christianity. And he always seems to be chasing something. And what I always think he's chasing is the acclaim that he got for The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Where he took a plot that was not his. He took it from he took it from a fucking Are You Afraid of the Dark? There's too many beat similarities. It's it's it can't be sure. coincidental, especially because he is someone who worked very closely with Nickelodeon and talked about watching a lot of Nickelodeon mm. and watching Are You Afraid of the Dark. Okay. He has admitted that he was a huge Are You Afraid of the Dark fan. So he rips off an Are You Afraid of the Dark plot line and makes what I a movie I don't like, but I will not call a bad movie. I, I will, if I said that earlier in the podcast, I will, for this final point, rescind that. I'm not going to call The Sixth Sense a bad movie. I'm going to say it's a movie that I don't like. And he has been chasing this ever since. I made a comparison to him and the Wachowskis at the beginning of this. And there's a definitive difference because the Wachowskis have never been trying to chase The Matrix's success. They have used The Matrix's, the Matrix's success to do shit they want to do. Yeah. And some of it has been great and some of it has not. Your your opinions on Speed Racer may vary, but it is very clear the Wachowskis were trying to do something with that. Just as a random point, uh, that same YouTuber I talked about who watched every Hollywood adaptation cites Speed Racer as the greatest anime adaptation of all time. Some people really hated it. I thought it was weird as an adaptation, but I appreciated it for what it was trying to do. Sure. Um, and I'm not the biggest Bukowski's fan. I don't love The Matrix like you do. I don't hate it, but I've never loved that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this was also a period of time where I thought Keanu Reeves was not doing very good as an actor. Sure. Um, besides the point. The Wachowskis took their cash from, uh, and that's C-A-C-H-E, cash, from The Matrix and used it to make things that they think are interesting. And, you know, at a certain point, you do get Jupiter Ascending when you do that. I think Sense8, while it is a show that did not connect with me super well, is a great concept and I think worth existing in the world. I think what M. Night Shyamalan has been trying to... And he's talked about this. He's talked about how that period where he was doing so poorly really fucked with him. Yeah, sure. Of Um, course. and, And I appreciate that. I actually do. Again, I don't have anything against the man himself. 
but I don't like his art. I would like for him to take his talents and really try and do different things. I think he works best when he tries to step away from the twist endings. I think he works best when he tries to be a little more mindful of some of the, um, again, frankly, really terrible politics that he has, I think, accidentally infused into a lot of his work. Sure. I don't think... I don't think M. Night Shyamalan hates disabled people. I don't think he's deliberately trying to create storylines in which disabled people are villains or monstrous. But he has made more than one work yeah. where disabled people are villains and monstrous. And that shouldn't have happened more than once. Because it's not like he wasn't called out for this shit with Unbreakable. Agreed, yeah. And, and we didn't explicitly say it, but that is the actual twist in Unbreakable that Samuel L. Jackson's character, uh, I forget his Mr. first Glass. name, Mr. Glass, has like this advanced brittle bone disease and is essentially wheelchair bound and is a disabled person and has psychotically orchestrated disasters throughout human history like train crashes and shit to try and find a superhuman and succeeds with Bruce Willis. That is the actual twist in Unbreakable. Yeah. A disabled man murders dozens if not hundreds of people for insane reasons. Yeah. And with Split, this continues because we take a mental illness that does not actually exist in the way that everyone, everyone thinks it... Well, and that everyone thinks it exists in pop culture. Sure. Uh, you know, we we referenced me, myself, and Irene a while back on this podcast, and and it does the same thing. That is not how those identity disorders function, and we know that a little bit better now than we did back then. And honestly, someone who was looking into it better back then would have done better. We don't have good disability politics in Hollywood. Disabled people are one of the handful of people you can still pretty easily get away with treating this horribly in media mm -hmm. but in split the treatment of it is grotesque when the mental illness is the thing that makes someone into a godlike villainous monster yeah. who passes judgment on someone's ability to continue to live based on the fact that they have seen suicidal ideation in them you survive more because you have struggled this fuck that yeah the politics of that are disgusting yeah absolutely and again i don't i really don't believe there's malice in night shyamalan's heart about this stuff but i don't think he thinks about it and i don't appreciate that especially from somebody who is a writer and who i think wants to be considered for being a very deliberately good writer but he's not. He's, sure. he's a bad writer. What? No. Yeah. He's a bad writer who's done some good work. Yeah. I. He's a bad writer who had one thing that shot him into the stratosphere of Hollywood popularity. That was ripped off. Sure. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I agree with every point you're making. I, I don't think M. Night Shyamalan, the person, is necessarily a bad person. 
seems like a pleasant, happy guy. Like we said, if 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 M Night Shyamalan has actually done any like real horrible shit, we don't know about it. Yeah, I I if I was a writer director. I would also insert myself into every single film. Like, I got no objection with that. That's not even a thing that only he does. No, it's not. It just um, got egregious after a bit. But at the end of the day, M. Night Shyamalan, the creative, is responsible for three of the worst movies ever made in The Happening, The Last Airbender, and After Earth. And as a creative, that is inexcusable... And not worthy of any of our time. Yeah. And if it was just that he had some misses, fine. But I, I deeply dislike this man's career. At some point, I'll give Split a chance. I, I, I will. I love Anya Taylor-Joy and I love James McAvoy. I'll watch it probably. But I I just, I wanted to take a little bit of time to shed some light on just and, and I'm and I want this to be nuanced because again I don't I don't hate the man. Sure. I really dislike his work and his career. I understand it's going through a resurgence right now, and I, I'm not and I want to be clear I'm not shitting on anybody who likes his work. Sure. You like some of his movies. I like some of his movies. I do, but I think it's worth questioning, and I think it's worth being aware of these things. And so yeah, that's my hate topic. I I hate the career of M Night Shyamalan, and I kind of wish that he would just like squirrel himself away for a few years and figure out something different to do with his work. I'd love to see him come back. I really would. I would love to see him come and do something really groundbreaking and stop trying to chase the goddamn sixth sense. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really feels like he succeeds when he is in a secondary capacity. Um, you are by no means alone in your hate of M. Night Shyamalan, but I appreciate you bringing such succinct and verifiable points. The, yeah. the thing about Sixth Sense being a ripoff is something I did not know. I guarantee it's not something our internet friends knew. Mm. And so that's great. That's what we do here on Love Hate Relationship. So thank you for listening, dear listeners. Um, hilariously, this has lasted about as long as an episode would if we had still done the relationship section. What the fuck are you going to do? Yeah, you know, we love to talk. That's very clear. Um, but like we said at the top, we are actually going to eschew the relationship question. But next episode is going to be nothing but relationship questions. So if you enjoy that, be sure to send your relationship questions in or just send us stuff that you find on the internet that you think is funny and you want our takes on. You can send all of that to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read it. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. We're told it helps people find the show. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHR Pod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, see what we're tweeting about. We're still on Twitter, right? We're still on Twitter. Twitter still exists, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, and you can send us your questions there. You can let us know your own opinions on board games and M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, please. Oh, God. Did M. Night Shyamalan ever come out with a board game? There has to be, like, a Sixth Sense promotional board game. There has to be. Oh, God. Absolutely. Yes, you can do all of that. You can follow Find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at JovoCop2113. You can also follow Andy's underscore minis to see what stuff I'm painting at any given moment. And you can follow my other podcast, Cult Fiction, 
where I review cult films, which I would say Shyamalan does not have any cult films. I, I would argue we will we will not be watching any of his works. Yeah, I think so. But we will be watching other stuff with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. And once again, that's cult fiction. You can find it everywhere you find love-hate relationships. That's right. You can uh, find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, I guess, LieChess and Chess.com at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. New 100 episodes, new format. Please tell your enemies. <laughs>